I'm Dietrich Stolle and I'm very, very excited to welcome you to our plenary panel here, to this roundtable. We as political scientists are clearly challenged by the current developments of Brexit, Trump, the rise of the radical right. Uh, and this uh, panel is meant to bring together academics uh, and scholars to really think about these issues, to bring some clarity into the debate, uh, to think about uh, what the rise of populism really means and whether it could have consequences for democracy. So that's the theme of today's panel. We've invited four excellent star scholars uh, of authoritarianism, of populism, and of democracy. And uh, I have the pleasure to introduce to you Sherry Berman from Barnard College, a scholar of nasty regimes. And <laughs> not a nasty woman, although maybe true. Uh, and of authoritarian regimes. She is very visible in the media. You can read uh, articles uh, by her on current developments on Fox and uh, many other channels. Mark Blythe uh, from Brown University, a professor and as you might see, a stand-up comedian, although his only problem is he likes to write for German shows on the economy in Germany, so that is That's problematic. Yeah, so we have to work on that humor a little more. Uh, Jacob Levy, uh, a professor of political theory from McGill University, so I'm not going in this order, who is uh, at home with contemporary approaches to the study of democracy, democratic theory. He also contributes to the Niskanen Center blog at the moment. Um, but that's only one thing about you, but I picked that up. Uh, and Christopher Parker from the University of uh, Washington, a co-author of a book on the Tea Party, and uh, he has written many pieces, academic as well as public pieces on race and politics. So, welcome to our panel. Um, and we also got a treat today. You know, treats and politics uh, is a new thing to study. So we got a treat, a treat from Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> rather than presentations. That's democracy. It was a democratic decision, a majority decision. So that's how we're going to do it. We will have a conversation. And uh, I'm going to moderate this conversation. And I will be you know, strict with time, so everyone gets an equal chance uh, to speak. So as we all know, during the past decades, uh, we've seen the rise of populist rhetoric, the rise of populist parties. We've seen them gaining uh, legislative importance uh, and seats. Sometimes they even uh, reached into ministerial jobs and uh, shifting the balance of power. So can we describe this phenomenon of the rise of Trump, Brexit, the rise of Le Pen, uh, Wilder, the AFD in Germany, and so on, as a common uh, kind of characteristic, as a common phenomenon that we call populism? Is that the right? Uh, uh, kind of term here that we are using and are there similarities and or are there too many differences between what we see in the world? So that's the first question and I already see some strong reactions in the panel, that's fantastic. Um, I, Chris, I'd like to start with you. 
Thank you. Uh, it's nice to be here. Although I had to fly through Dallas, Texas to get here, so I'm not real happy about that. First of all, can you hear? Yeah? Well, we don't have mics, so well, that could so be a problem. I could, I could give my mic you to you. Pass, that, that is a little risky. You should pass uh, it around. To give my mic away, but we can... Well, I, I don't need a mic. Can you, can you hear me, Richard? You can hear me back there. Okay, all right. Uh, they less conversational, Richard. Less conversational. <laughs> okay. okay. Hey, hey, Richard, just turn your hearing aid up, man. Just turn your hearing aid up. Um, all right. So, okay, that's too loud. All right. Can everybody else beyond Richard hear me? Okay. So. I, for one, do not think this is populism. Now, I, if you guys are like really sensitive when it comes to the words people use, I'm going to offer you uh, a blanket disclaimer right now. I will probably drop an F-bomb here and there. Because this stuff really pisses me the fuck off. So, this is not populism, if you ask me. And if we're talking about populism, I normally think of uh, its roots in the People's Party and the Farmers Alliance back in the late 19th century. That was essentially a left-wing movement, if you will, that, was, uh, that came about um, for a drive towards economic justice, right? This was not kind of what we see. Now, although there were some exclusionary elements to that, um, mainly you know, when it comes to Chinese, because um, essentially the movement was an interracial movement in initially. And then the Democrats uh, came and drove a wedge uh, between the populace um, and hived away a lot of black folks from it, and it became a more exclusively white, mainly working class farmers movement. But I want to make sure that everyone's clear on this. This was a left-wing movement that was geared towards economic justice, first of all. But, and so uh, some, of the, some of the discourse around populism now as it pertains to the United States and to Europe has centered on economic anxiety, right? Globalization, um, immigrants coming in, taking jobs, so on and so forth. But the most recent empirical work shows that not to be the case. In Europe, some work by Engelhardt and, and Norris suggests that it wasn't about economic anxiety, right? It was about cultural threat. The work that my colleague and I, Matt Barreto, did on the Tea Party book and the stuff we're doing right now on Trump shows the same thing. Okay, all right, good, good opening <laughs> statement. Uh, let's move to Sherry. You're not going to talk. <laughs> all, right. Um, all right, so since Chris started off by saying no, I will start off by saying yes, just so we can get a conversation started. There's clearly huge differences among the movements that are called populist in places like Europe and the United States. I would say there are some, though, very important similarities, the most notable of which, right, is that they all claim to be speaking for the people, however defined, and against elites, institutions, political parties that are somehow, for some reason, ignoring these people and are working in the service of, you know, sort of some nefarious group, sometimes communally defined, sometimes economically defined, that is trying to subvert the will of the people. And I think that this is very important to note because it indicates that what's going on is an incredible amount of discontent, an incredible amount of resentment against the existing status quo. So I think that's an important thing. And as I would say, and as, as we've discussed, this is more a style of politics than any kind of coherent ideology. But I think it's important to note because it gives us 
very good insight into what the kind of tenor or drivers of politics are today in, um, in many parts of the West. Okay, Mark, do you want to chime in? No, I'm going to say it now. Um, have a look at the title. What's missing? All the left-wing versions. Syriza, De Gruna. Uh, what else would put in there? Gilinka. Why not throw them in there? Uh, Five Star Movement, right? Let's throw in Syriza. Let's throw in the Scottish National Party. Let's throw in Corbyn's Surge. This is not exclusively about racial resentment. This is a rejection of a giant rise in inequality and resources across the OECD where wages have stagnated for the bottom 60% for 30 years. The private sector filled in the gap with a huge amount of private credit. That all went bang in 2008. Rather than the banks eating their losses, we socialised the debt, put austerity budgets on the people who could not afford to pay for it, screwed them into the ground, told them it was good for them, made them pay more for their public services while the rich took more and more in the form of tax cuts and other advantages through quantitative easing and asset price distortion for themselves and then we wring our hands when we lose elections because we can't believe that people think that the status quo is unjust. Oh fuck me, they must be a bunch of racists. <laughs> How about? That's good. Thank you, Mark. You take up. <laughs> there, 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 there will be no F-bombs. Uh, I... I, I I'm, I'm with Sherry about the understanding of populism and of its relationship, the relationship between the ancestry of the word and movement and what we're seeing today. There's an anti-pluralism, an anti-institutionalism, an anti-legalism, and an anti-commercialism that was characteristic of populism in the late 19th century and is characteristic of many of the movements we're talking about today. Uh, I'm, I worry, though, about which things we lump together. I, I think of the Trump phenomenon in line with what we're seeing in Hungary, Turkey, the Philippines, more than in line with Brexit in particular. Uh, now, one of the features of populism often is an excess attachment to referenda and direct participation, and there's that aspect of Brexit. But insofar as what we're seeing in Brexit is uh, a strange way around to what had been the primary policy goal of a significant part of one of the two largest parties in Britain for a generation. Uh, that was not essentially a bottom-up demand movement about who the British people were. There's a level of nationalism that we're always going to find, but I don't think just the presence of nationalist sentiment in the populace makes something populist. There's something about the substitution of the part of the people for the whole of the people, and typically the embodiment of the will of that unified people in something like great leadership that will overcome the divisions of banks, institutions, pluralistic political parties, independent churches and universities, minority groups, and so on and so on, which is deeply characteristic of what we're seeing in Trump as well as in some of those other countries that I mentioned, uh, that it would likely be true if Le Pen or Wilders had gone further than they did seems plausible to me, uh, but we don't know. Okay. Jacob already referred to uh, some historical parallels uh, to populist movements in the past. So I think I want to go more deeply into this question. Uh, to what extent can we really distinguish previous historical populist movements that we've seen in the US and elsewhere? And uh, to, to what extent do we see similarities? So I start with Sherry. 
Um, so that's a great question. I mean, Chris has also already referred to the fact that the whole term, right, the concept really does um, sort of spring from a study of what was going on in the United States in the late 19th century, that is to say movements, and in particular a couple of movements that kind of arose against the established order in the name of, you know, groups that were getting screwed, I didn't use the F word, by existing policies, existing arrangements, yada, yada, yada. What's important really to note is that um, that movement, right, although it faded away, became or influenced subsequent political developments in ways that I think were probably quite healthy for the United States, bringing onto the agenda issues that needed to be discussed, giving voice to people who felt excluded. And so I think one of the things that we're seeing now, right, is an attempt to do that, right, but, but what I would call populist movements to sort of bring issues back onto the agenda. So I would say that there definitely are comparisons that can be made across time. Personally, given my own interests, I would be very wary, however, of making too close a comparison, as is often done, I think, today, both in scholarly and popular literature, between what's going on today and what was going on in the 1930s in Europe, that is to say, with fascist and national socialist movements. That comparison, I think, obscures more than it illuminates. And the whole point of comparisons, right, with as with populist movements in the US, is to kind of highlight some important dynamics or features that we can then focus on and learn more about. I think there are probably more differences between the 1930s and today than there are similarities. And I think that if we stress that too much, because it's such an exciting and dramatic example, we miss, I think, a lot of what actually is going on today, and equally important what, and perhaps we can talk more about this, what some of the solutions to contemporary problems are. Yeah, okay, Jacob. Sherry, is that uh, obscuring primarily a phenomenon of Nazism, or do you think that what we're seeing now also doesn't have commonalities with the more ordinary right-wing authoritarian movements in Italy and the post-Hofsburg states in the 1930s? So a lot of the time, if we say fascism in the 30s, what we're thinking of is the, the run of the Holocaust, and that's obscure. But maybe Italy and the Balkans are different. I think a key thing for us to understand is that at least rhetorically, and this is true of the populist movements that kind of our understanding stems from in the US and today, is that ostensibly at least all of these movements claim to want to improve democracy or to rectify its contemporary failures. This was absolutely not what right-wing authoritarian movements or fascist or national socialist movements wanted to do. They wanted to eliminate democracy. They weren't interested in improving it. They didn't think it had any virtues. They wanted it gone and replaced with an entirely different system. Today, as in the late 19th century, we have movements that say, look, democracy is not working for the people, right? It is working for some other group. It is, ex it is excluding important interests and demands from the system. And this is important because it means that Democracy has an opportunity to rectify these problems, to respond to people in ways that will eliminate the appeal of these movements. National socialists did not want Italian fascists, right-wing authoritarians do not want better functioning democracy. They want it gone. And so the responses to those kind of movements must be inherently different, I think, than the responses to Le Pen or Trump or Wilders or Syriza. This is a response, or to the populace of the late exit, this, look, these are people who are pissed off. They feel like they've been excluded and their demands are not being heard. If the existing order is not able to do that, then they may prove to move to even more extreme movements, but the opportunity is there, okay? And so I think that that's a very different kind of situation that calls forth both a different understanding and a potentially different response. Okay, on this historical question still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I wanted to, look, 
I've, I've traveled to Europe a lot of times. I don't study Europe necessarily, so I'm not going to let you guys drag me to the deep end of the pool there. So I will stick with the American example. And so when we talk about these kind of, I refuse to use the word popular, I'm not, I'm not going there with this stuff. I will say reactionary. Um, when we see these kind of movements in our research, Matt and I show, we trace it all the way back to the, uh, to the Know Nothing Party of the 1850s, um, and we go forward to the Klan of the 1920s, not the Klan of the 19th century, nor the Klan of the 1950s. The Klan of the 1920s was a national right-wing movement that was a, they, they had some political success, right? And so when we think about the John Birch Society, and when we think about the Tea Party, and now the Trump folks, one of the things that they all have in common, well, several things. One, that they're all reacting to some perceived rapid social change. That's one. Two, the demographics are remarkably and strikingly similar. And this is going to describe a lot of you men out here. White, male, middle class or better off, um, fairly well educated, native born. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, and Christian, right? If we trace, if we look at each one of these movements, that is the core demographic group that is driving these movements because they feel as though, in an American context, that America is theirs, right? And they feel like their country is slipping away. So we think about the slogan for the Tea Party, take our country back. If we think about Trump, make America great again, these, both of these suggested something so fundamentally uh, in America is fucked up now and we need to go backwards to reclaim our country. So I see, you know, tremendous historical continuity, uh, at least in an American case, right? Can't okay. speak to Europe. So, <laughs> so to, 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 change it, to change it slightly, just one question I'll just drop there for you. Sure. Where's Bernie Sanders in your story? So I just want to leave that. I want to come back to it, right? Okay. It's not just the right. We're always just fascinated by the right. Okay. Sure, sure. So here's going back to the original question, right? First one, there's a Vox podcast with Ezra Klein where he interviews Yasha Monk. And the two of them sit there and say it's completely illegitimate to make comparisons between the current situation in the 1930s. And they spend the next hour doing it. <laughs> Quite deliberately as an act of politics, right? Which is exactly what they're doing. So let's not kid ourselves on, right? That's politics. Second thing is this. I think about the 1920s in a more macro sense. So you have basically the evisceration of middle class savings because of bad financial policies during World War I. Then you have the post-war boom, which turns into an inflationary bust. Then you have a massive deflation followed by an economic stagnation and a collapse in trade. These are common shocks across the whole world. You get everything from Swedish social democracy and the New Deal to genocidal fascism. Economic drivers can be common. But when they get refracted through domestic political cultures and institutions, they have different flavors. And the American flavor is exactly as you described, but there's also a very large left-wing thing going on there as well, which you're curiously silent about. Mm -hmm. And Greece has a fascist party, but it also has a real organized left. Right? And I, I worry that what we do by just focusing on this and constantly going on in the 1930s and Trump is a bad person is that we really are misunderstanding what's going on here. And fundamentally to me what is going on here is a rejection of an economic order which has not benefited the vast majority of people in the wealthy countries of the world for over 30 years. That's it. It's that simple. Nice. Can I yeah, sure. about short Okay, yeah. short and sweet. So when we think about these right-wing reactionary, well, by definition, a right-wing movement is reactionary. These movements are about contracting democracy, small d. 
Bernie Sanders is about expanding democracy, small d. But what's driving? Why are they both there at this point in time? I don't get a sense that from Bernie's people that they feel like they're losing their country ethnoculturally. No, they don't, but they feel that right. they're losing the battle economically. Oh, I'm not denying that. But why is economically on one side but not the other side? Well, and with a real cultural overlay. I mean, the, the, the way that Wall Street slash bankers get talked about in that discourse um, and coastal elites and Sherry's trying to come in. So. No, 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 please, please finish. Um, I, 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 I don't think that that economic populism is, as it were, innocent of cultural politics and the contraction of the country and a rejection of categories. Uh, it is not as overtly anti-Semitic as po populist anti Commerce and populist anti-banking used to be, um, and Bernie Sanders is not anti-Semitic. But, right. but the thought that uh, Wall Street is Wall Street slash the coasts are something other than real America. Mm -hmm. That's a discourse that we're, we find in left populism as much as in right populism. You want Jerry, to say that? I want to. Yeah. So I mean, I think that this is an important and illuminating comparison. I mean, the other part of the world where populism both his, uh, historically has been very powerful is in Latin America. And there you've had, for the most part, left-wing populisms. And I think what joins those is in the right-wing movements, the sort of undermining of democracy is being done by some communal, ethnic, religious group that is, you know, manipulating the system to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the, you know, the sort of whatever it is, the white or the longer term citizens, whatever. In the left wing discourse, it's some kind of, you know, it's the bankers, it's the economic elite, it's the international economic, you know, institutions. And so the commonality, right, is that there is a group out there upon which we can hook the blame for our problems. And um, what we need to do is we need to deal with these people. Now, I don't think Bernie Sanders and most of the people in his movement are anti-democratic. I'm not convinced that most of Trump supporters are either. And I'm not convinced that they were entirely wrong. However, there is this view, right, of the world divided into us and them. And there being relatively simple answers to what are always incredibly complex problems. And so the left-wing version, the sort of group against which you're mobilized is some kind of economic, financial elite. In the right-wing version, that group tends to be, you know, whatever, communally, religiously, ethnically defined. But there is a style there that is common across, I think, both of those okay. kinds of movements. Yes, I want to want to get into this uh, exact answer a little bit more. You already started to talk about that you don't believe that the populist movements of today are as anti-democratic as some of their earlier versions. Still. I think I want to pose the question to the panel about whether the different forms of populism we see today have the potential to undermine our democratic institutions. Do we see any evidence of it? Uh, and uh, if so, how, how does it work? And uh, then my next question would be, are our institutions strong enough to withstand uh, this potential pressure? So uh, who wants to go first? Mark. So again, I think about this in a rather peculiar way. Let's think about this celebration of democracy that we're defending. Um, beginning in the 1970s, we essentially technified politics. 
whether it was up to independent central banks, out to the WTO. Parliaments decided less and less. Independent experts decided more and more. The cult of expertise was there. So that all went wrong because it turned out the experts were full of shit. They really got a whole host of this stuff wrong in economics and in foreign policy. The great moderation turned out to be rather immoderate, for example, right? Banks are the best judge of risk. Yeah, that's a good one, right? So there was a huge technification, externalization of commitment of policy. So what's left with parties? Well, you don't really need members that are pain in the ass. You don't like unions, they ask for things. So the centre-left becomes this kind of rather narrow talking shop that basically hangs around Davos telling each other that everything's great, right? And when that all goes bang, they, they go, oh my God, what are we going to do now? And they wonder why it is that their base has deserted them, right? So what exactly is this great democracy we're defending? Second thing is, what are populists, to use that word, left or right do? They vote, they mobilize, they talk about politics, they engage with each other. Oh, those bastards, they're Democrats. <laughs> So, you know, let's have a little bit of sort of respect for the process here. That what we did ourselves was to hollow out our democratic capacities, hand it over to technocrats and hope for the best. And then when that went wrong, we blame people for being reactionary towards that, whether it's a left or a right reaction. The hypocrisy is breathtaking. Okay, sure. so I think this is a crucial point, right? Is that we should see technocracy and populism as as evil twins, right? They feed off each other, totally. right? There is a lot of anger and resentment out there today across the West and other parts of the world that is totally justified, totally justified. One of the reasons is that people see their governments no longer sovereign over decisions that are important to their people. And that is not incorrect, as Mark has pointed out. There have been a lot of decisions that have been taken out of the hands of elected leaders. In the European case, the, the boogeyman here, of course, is the European Union, right or wrong. And this really angers people because they're like, look, I vote. I have a right to have an influence over policy making and decisions. And I don't like the idea that people who are not part of my national community are now making decisions. And the response of the elite to this often is, well, these people are crazy. They're deplorable. So we're going to take more power out of their hands and put it in the hands of enlightened whatever it is, bureaucrats or whatever. This is exactly the wrong solution. These two things, technocracy and populism, they feed off each other, they worsen each other, and we have seen them rise in tandem precisely because of this reason. The elite doesn't like populism, populism doesn't like the elites, and they each pull away from each other and make the problems that exist even more exaggerated. And I think that that's an important dynamic that we need to really think more carefully about. Okay, Chris. So I want to um, get back to your, your original question on this point and also make a reference to what Sherry said earlier about, you know, her not being... Speak up again. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can do that. So I want to get back to the original question that was asked in this segment, and but also address what uh, Sherry said um, a couple comments ago about she's not so sure that Trump supporters are anti-democratic. I'm completely convinced they are. Not all of them. But if you think about this probabilistically and not categorically, probably more so than the average American. Well, yeah, the Trump supporters. Right, exactly. So, so when we think about, so let me speak to this point, though. Thank you, Mark. So let me speak <laughs> to this point, though. So, so referencing, um, you know, the esteemed late uh, Robert Dahl, one of the pillars of democracy or conditions of democracy um, was voting equality or equal access, right? And if we look at what's happened in the United States, um, not necessarily beginning with the Tea Party, but they were completely behind this, the voter ID laws, yeah. right? So that, I would argue, is definitely anti-democratic, right? And that is one way in which the right wing 
of these or these reactionary movements, I'm not going to use populism in this. We're going to make it by the end. No, 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 no. Say the P word. Say the P word. So they are they are definitely a threat to democracy in that particular context. Okay, Jacob. I prefer to think about threats to constitutionalism rather than threats to democracy. I think that it's very much the case that populist movements are going to go around wearing democratic words and their, uh, their leaders and their referenda will both be performed in a democratic looking way. What populism and the representation of populist movements by strong authoritarian leaders, what that does is challenge and hollow out the institutions and laws in between. It's anti-parliamentary, it's anti-judicial, it's anti-legalistic, and it's anti-pluralistic. Uh, it is also, well, it's just, again, anti-commercial, and that that is a bad thing, along with these other bad things. Uh, the, the question of whether those intermediate governing constitu constitutional institutions can survive the challenge, there we might have to talk about, well, old-fashioned things like different governing systems. Uh, we, we know that presidentialism is a much more acute risk for certain kinds of damage to intermediate constitutional institutions. Um, the United States had a longish lucky streak as being a presidential system that didn't go the path that every place that followed the United States' model ended up. Um, and the lucky streak ran out eventually. And the United States now faces the same kind of very strong executive risk that other presidentialist systems often have. I suspect that parliamentary systems, and per certainly parliamentary systems in consolidated democracies in Europe, are going to be more robust in terms of the survival of their intermediate constitu constitutional institutions um, to the moment passing and the financial crisis fading into historical memory. So on one hand, I see there, there is uh, some talk about that populism might mobilize people more into politics, right? And that might be a moment of democracy that we should not forget about. Uh, although if, I think if you look at empirical data, the, the people who vote for populist parties are actually less participatory than others. But that's just a, a little empirical fact here. But on the other hand, there is a lot of talk about that populism in itself might undermine or hollow out the democratic institutions. I want to get into to that point a little bit more and talk about how that is actually done. Do we have some examples from other populist regimes? Do we have some current examples? How does that really work? Sherry, do you want to go? Um, so, I mean, I think that these are great. These are the kinds of things we need to really be thinking about. I mean, again, to return to Chris's initial comment, I mean, populism can either hollow out, I think, or strengthen democracy, right? So when populist movements arise and they reflect, again, discontent among the population, they bring to the political agenda issues that perhaps elites have not wanted to recognize or just chosen not to deal with or whatever, and they mobilize people into the political system, into the democratic system who have felt excluded, should the system respond, then this will turn out to have been something that strengthens democracy, right? Bringing new issues onto the agenda, bringing people who felt excluded into the political system. So this can turn out, as it did, I think, perhaps in the United States in the late 19th century, to again, to end up contributing to strengthening democracy. If, however, the institutions, the parties, the elites do not respond, then one would expect that these movements will become more extreme, right, and less interested in fixing and perhaps then replacing democracy. So I think populism can go either way. Um, and I think that the way to look is less at the movements themselves and more to the way that 
again, systems respond. To break, the, to break the cardinal rule that I said before and to follow Mark's thing, if we are to look back at the 30s, because that is unfortunately the era I know best, there were, as Mark said, similar shocks and very different responses. In places where the system could not respond, Germany being the worst case scenario, this is what you got, we all know there. In places where the system could respond, Sweden, right? You got something very, very different, right? And this is less about the movements, it's less about the problems, and it's more about the responses. We have an opportunity to deal with dissatisfaction in democracy in a way authoritarian systems do not. If the regimes do not respond, then things are going to get worse. You want it on this one? Yeah. Uh I mean, if there's a distinction between populism and simply popular participation, which I hope there is for the word to be useful, then there has to be something we can say about the shape of the demands that are rising up. And I suspect the shape of the demands that rise up, rise up out of populist movements um, are extremely difficult for some kinds of political actors. Slow, patient, constitutionalist, parliamentary, judicial, political actors uh, to respond to. And some of them, well, they're, they're always going to be fantasies. And so the question is going to be what kind of leader can spin the fantasy best. They will always be easier bait for irresponsible leadership to pick up than for responsible leadership to pick up. Uh, we can remake the world as an ethnocultural, racial harmony and undo diversity. We can undo the fact that there's a whole globe out there economically. We can restore an imaginary golden age of economic and financial sovereignty as if there's no such thing as world capital markets or in the old days, no such thing as the World Bank or the IMF. There's never been a time when states were entirely autarkic deciders of their own economic fates. Uh, and if the movements are tempted by that kind of wish, then the kinds of leaders who will find it easiest to marshal it to their power will be unappealing. Chris. No, go ahead. So thank you. So, so I want to go back to this issue about whether or not, I'm not going to say populism, these movements are good. <laughs> Unless we're talking about left wing, which is authentic populism. Uh, I'm just, I'm staying there. You, if you guys want to get me off that, you guys need to buy me a drink later. <laughs> Maybe I'll listen. But, um, but, so, but there is an interesting question here, right? So to the extent that political participation and engagement is good, at least theoretically for democracy, okay, I can ride with you on that. But if we're thinking about what the motives are, what the motivations are, what motivates these people to be so politically engaged, in my research I show they're scared. They feel like they're losing their country. I don't care if we're the United States. We could be in, you know, the true Finn party in Finland. We could, Norway even has a reactionary party, right? So they feel like they're losing their country, right? And so, I, so the question becomes, what good is political mobilization and engagement and participation if it's towards, I think, anti-democratic ends, right? So, I mean, so it's, you gotta figure out, you gotta pick your poison, right? Is it, does, uh, does, does normative political theory play into this equation at all? Mark, on this point, because Sherry shakes her head and she has a direct reaction. <laughs> she's always shaking her head. Usually when she's sitting next to me, she's shaking her head. Um, all right, so again, just take uh, what Jake was saying about the, the global context, right? So let's take two cases. So Greece. Greece has elections. Why? There's literally no point in Greece having elections. Uh, they are a debt prison. 
They will continue to be so until other people who do not vote in their elections decide that they're getting out of it. It's a disgrace and it's in the heart of democratic Europe. Second one, Britain. We took back control. <laughs> well done. Now, the interesting thing about the Brexit vote for me is it's the old against the young. It's the same as the Scottish independence vote, and this is why I spend time looking at the left-wing side of this rather than just the reactionary side of this, right? Now, in Britain, it's brilliant because the Brits had, forgive me, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to do what I do for a living now, right? So the Brits had everything. They got to set the rules with the Germans and the French. They were never going to join the euro, which is a total disaster zone. They had their own shitty little hedge currency that was overvalued that allowed them to run massive trade deficits because they have an outsized financial sector that does money laundering for the rest of the world and foreign and forex transactions, right? That's basically the British economy, right? And, and this works. This works. I'm being totally serious, right? This works so long as you stay in that sweet spot. But what did they do? They voted themselves out of that sweet spot, and now they're going to have to negotiate a settlement with a bunch of people who has in their interest to punish them for doing so, and they will never negotiate themselves back to the place that they were in. But here's the irony. They voted. They took back control. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> now, what's, what am I to want the, the take-home point here, right? We can talk about democracy and as an end, but it always happens in a context. And the context in Greece is massively different from Britain, and neither of them are going to get what they vote for. So, I mean, there's a lot here that I'd love to respond to. I'll, I'll start with Mark first, because he spoke last, so it's freshest in my mind. I mean, you know, if you look at the Brexit campaign, I think this is a classic example of how not to respond to populism, right? So the, pop, the people for voting, the people advocating Brexit stressed all of these fears, types of British versions of the fears that Chris were talking about. We don't want European bureaucrats telling us what to do. We don't like immigrants coming into our country uncontrolled. And they played off those fears. And what did the other side do? They ran an entirely negative campaign. Oh, well, if we leave Europe, our this is going to go up, and our that's going to go up. And like, you don't respond to people's fears by scaring them even more. You have to have, you have to have a better answer. You have to have a positive case to respond to the negative one. And that was not that was not well articulated in the British case by the left. The Labour Party was essentially absent. The people who otherwise were for staying in the EU made primarily negative policy cases rather than built up over the years a good case for why Britain should be in, in Europe, the European yeah. Union. So I think that case is actually indicative of a lot of the problem on the left and a lot of the response to populism, although the British have long had a very problematic relationship with Europe that I think is, you know, makes that case a little different. To get back to Chris's point, people are scared. They are scared, and sometimes justifiably, and often those fears end up focusing on the wrong causes. I don't like people who don't look like me. I don't like people from outside of the country. But we have to find better ways to respond to those fears. We do, because we live in a democracy, and if 40% of your people are pissed off, that's a democratic problem. The alternative is technocracy or authoritarianism, which I think we can mostly agree is a much worse answer. So yes, people are scared. Yes, those fears often lead them to irrational conclusions. But if we, true Democrats, people on the center left as opposed to the right, do not find better ways to respond to these things, then, I mean, 
you know, that's what democracy is about. We have to have positive cases to respond to the negative ones, or positive arguments to respond to the negative ones. Okay, so positive arguments is one solution here. So I want to talk a little bit about these solutions that we can offer. Maybe some institutional solutions uh, that uh, can shape uh, the the path of uh, populist of the populist agenda. So, so what are some some good cases? What are some institutions that are important that need to be kicked in? And what are some of these answers that we can give? to address the legitimate or not so legitimate claims that are being made right now. Mark. All right, so this, this comes to the point of disagreement between the two of us. It's very simple. If it's all racism, let me make an extreme case. I know you're ah, not saying that. You're also not saying populism, so I'm going to push it. Right. So, okay. I'm going to push so, right back. Exactly. All right. So let's say that basically, you know, for example, the, the, the paper you mentioned earlier, the Pippa Norris and Engelhardt paper, right? I actually read that very differently. They, they really can't disangle causation in it. I mean, they've got three stars on the cultural variables and two stars on the economic one. So let, let's not call it a slam dunk, right? But let's say all this stuff's intertwined. Now, here's your public policy problem. Let's suppose that for whatever reason, there's been a large exogenous rise in the supply curve of racists. They just showed up, right? Suddenly they're all it's just more racists, all right, right? And that's it, and they're bad people. And they are bad people. I'm not a racist, I fucking hate racists, right? So what should we do? You, you have to say that sitting next to me right now. Absolutely not. Well, wait, wait till I go home and put on my robes. But, but what's the public policy solution? Do we do sort of like North Vietnamese re-education camps? Right? Do we put 30% of the population on the naughty step and admonish them? Right? I mean, do we build the whole world as Canada? That would be nice, but apparently you've got some crackpots in Alberta. So you're not innocent either, right? Now, here's the other one. So I look at this, you know, because I'm a recovering economist and I study finance, so this is how I look at the world. In the 1990s, when everyone was living high on the good bit of the credit cycle, nobody gave a shit about this stuff. We were so tolerant because everybody thought they had money. So if you address the underlying economic problems, I mean, think about a place like Gary, Indiana, majority African-American city, part supplier for Detroit, went bust in the 1980s. It's had equivalent to a 40% GDP shock. Completely uncompensated. No welfare transfers, no retraining, no skilling. This story's common throughout that entire region. And yet what we seem to do is we seem to go, yeah, that's somehow unimportant, right? What's really happened is that people have gotten a bit more racist. I think that's really weak. And I think that the only way you can deal with this, I know you're going to come at this, right? But I think the only way we can deal with this is public policy is we recognize that if this is not an economic problem, because there are solutions to economic problems, you're really screwed. You're really in trouble. So we're fucked. Not we are totally problem. fucked, and I'm going to explain why right now. No, no. All right. So, <laughs> so first of all, it's not, not going to have two possible. So first, so first of all, it's not all about race. A lot of people want to reduce this react these reactionary movements, as I call them, to race. It is not reducible to race. It's about difference, right? So race, they, they're race, sex, it's homophobic, xenophobic, the whole thing, right? It's not about race. First of all, second of all, when we talk, when we think about, just say, the clan of the 1920s, a lot of those folks were really relatively well off. They were not fucking crying poor. They weren't. The John Burke Society, a lot of those folks were relatively well off. Tea partiers did relatively well as well. And we see in, with the Trump supporters, Trump got 48% of the white college educated vote, right? This shit is not about economics. These people were not left behind by globalization. These are not, these are not people who are poor. I'm not saying that economics has nothing to do with it, but I think you're overstating the case for economics. 
I entirely disagree. We can have this one, bro. It's not 48%. It depends on which part of the income distribution you're sampling from. You can go to college now and come out with so much debt that your net income is lower than it would have been 20 years ago if you were a manual worker on a union. Okay. I mean, come on. That's okay. just ridiculous. So do I have to bust out the numbers on you right now? I can bust them out. <laughs> so look. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, we can talk about this later. Yeah, let's bring a voice of civility and reason into this debate. So, as, as I understand voting behavior, which is approximately not at all, one of, one of the things that our colleagues tell us about voting behavior is people are less likely to vote their personal recent income events than they are their perception of the economy as a whole, um, which has multiple possible explanations. It could be something public spirited. It could be an understanding that my economic fate in expectation is significantly tied up with the economic condition of the broader state of the world. So uh, 2008, the financial crisis, we've hardly said these words. If, if there's a change in the world, prior to, say, the emergence of the Tea Party and Occupy more or less simultaneously in the United States, it's the financial crisis. And that the Tea Partiers did not personally, many of them, take massive financial hits, though a lot of them did in their property values, which they understood to affect their future well-being. Uh, they still understood that the economy they inhabit had taken a massive, massive negative shock. Now, I'm uneasy about how much weight to place on this because, well, I don't think that it explains some of the really important cases like Turkey right now, like Hungary over the last several years. Um, but certainly with respect to the United States, I think you could say there's, a, there's always been a Republican Party. There's always been overlapping, though not identical with that, a lot of the sentiments that you're talking about. What is it that is newly different? What is it that's newly different has to be something to do with 2008 and the long aftermath of that. It, yes, sure. So, I mean, I think that this is an important, also an important thing for us to think about is differentiating these different factors. So, I mean, the, the numbers, as far as I know, again, are perfectly clear that the supporters, particularly of Trump, were not the poorest Americans. Those people still tend to vote Democratic. Um, but, but, and so it would be wrong to, to think of Trump supporters as, you know, your sort of necessarily unemployed factory worker in Gary, Indiana. However, I think also important to note, which I, I, I think, Chris, maybe you would agree with, is the, this point that Jacob brings up, which is there has been this huge change in the economy aggravated by 2008 of increased insecurity. Right? So even if you're relatively well off, you have this sense that your children might be and that your community, however defined, is really living in kind of precarious times. An incredible increase in inequality, declines in social mobility. And so I'm not sure how you'd measure this, but even if your own personal situation is not that bad, in fact, comparatively quite good, you have a sense that the world has changed in ways that make you very uncomfortable. And I think this gets back to Mark's point, which is that there's probably an underlying sort of set of, you know, sort of social or cultural or racial discomfort, not just in the United States, but across all countries. These things are much more easily activated when you feel that the world has become relatively zero sum, right? When you feel like I'm losing and somebody else is gaining. Now, perhaps that's incorrect, but that's an easier perception to have today than it would have been at other points in the sort of 20th century. And I think that this makes it easier for people to both look for scapegoats and for politicians to focus on those scapegoats because they're easy, 
They provide simple answers to problems, and they enable you to rally people behind this kind of moment of discontent. And so I do think it's important that we think about both social and economic factors in a more differentiated manner, because there's a lot going on here, and it's... And they're know, influencing each other. Exactly. Uh, I should say at this point that we do have a U.S. election panel that will speak to some of these issues, uh, who these voters were in 2016 in, in the afternoon, right? Uh, is it the same room, actually? Uh, oh, anyway, I will we'll figure that out. Um, and so there is a, uh, there are people and academics that we invited that will address these issues about individual situations that have led to the Trump vote. Uh, and so on. But I actually want to come back to my question, uh, which was so far avoided, and <laughs> I hope not because there are no solutions, but I really want to talk about those solutions uh, and how to address, I think, what we have identified in interaction of economic concerns and uh, racial and outgroup concerns. So uh, how do we address this better in our democracies? Are there examples that we can learn from? And which institutions should take this over? Which institutions are there to put a block there uh, to these developments? So I want to throw this up again. Sorry. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> give us your solutions. Okay, I'll give you. Uh, well, I don't really think clearly there are no really easy solutions. I think that I, I, I'm still not on the whole economic anxiety. I just I can't get there. But I will okay. say this. Um, that I think if you look at what motivates, once again, I'll, I'll qualify this by saying these people on the right, these reactionaries, it's, it's more easily to be motivated by fear and anxiety and anger than it is to be by hope, right? And that is the problem, right? And so, and I, and I think that, so if you look at, like in the book Matt and I did a few, uh, few years ago, yeah. we showed that even among all conservatives, that these reactionary types, these Tea Party types, were much more politically engaged than these establishment types. And the main difference is that they were more freaked out and scared than the establishment conservatives, right? So, so I guess, and, and so one of the reasons why I think that Occupy went away, right? Because I, I, I'm not. I, I think you, you got something to say on the left wing stuff. But so the one, no, one of the reasons why I think that that kind of went away more rapidly. And it didn't have the. Uh, it wasn't sustained um, like the right wing, or at least in America, the Tea Party was, and now Trump is because those folks were really motivated by um, material threat and anxiety, and the people for the Tea Party, they were more motivated by symbolic threat. Right? It's more of this existential sort of cultural threat, and that scared the shit out of them, right? A lot of these people had never participated in politics before, and now they're out, they're motivated. These people knew a lot about, I mean, these people, they did, they knew a lot about, and as, as our colleague, David Scotchpo shows in her book, uh, that they knew a lot about process, right? Because this, this anxiety, as Marcus and his colleagues have shown, make people more thirsty for knowledge, for political knowledge. So they, they're really high on political knowledge, they're really high on knowing what process is, People on the left, they didn't do that. They weren't not that not they were not that knowledgeable. They were not as motivated because I would argue that those folks on the left were motivated more by, you know, a little more by hope and, and more forward-looking. People on the right are motivated by backward-looking and, and fear and anxiety and anger. And so I would say in the short term, we need to scare the shit out of people on the left. That, that's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> So I, 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 I do think that our turn to economics in response to the previous round of the question was actually in part an attempt to answer the question. 
in countries where a catastrophic election hasn't yet happened, uh, I think that as the economic after effects of the 2008 shock fade away, and as relatively normal economic growth resumes, a lot of the fervor and poison will go out. And there, there will still be active political movements left and right, and there will be tensions between elites and non-elites, and, and, and we have some hope of restoring something like normal partisan contestation in the functioning constitutional democracies. The United States, let's not forget, was a few flaps of butterfly wings away from dodging the bullet and outlasting this. Trump was not a direct emergence out of the Tea Party. The Tea Party candidates all fell by the wayside one after the other. Um, there's overlap in the voting base, but in terms of the organized movement, Trump was not a creature of the Tea Party. Trump was this deeply strange creature of his own who figured out how to marshal the, the underlying political movements and who didn't win a plurality of the votes. Um, and who, but for James Comey's FBI letter, wouldn't have won a plurality, wouldn't have won a majority in electoral college. And then we could have talked about what party strengthening looks like, what it looks like to let the Republican Party in the future not be so vulnerable to hostile outside takeover. Uh, once there's been a catastrophic election, the conditions for fixing things might be very different from the conditions for avoiding things. And one of the things that I'm deeply worried about with respect to the United States right now is um, we're resting a lot of hope for salvaging something out of the next four years out of what would otherwise, everyone would understand, be deeply dangerous trends in the security and intelligence apparatuses. Um, I wake up every morning hoping that a CIA and FBI leaks will have come out revealing terrible things about Trump and his circle. But that's a terrible mechanism. It's a deeply, deeply dangerous deeply mechanism. Um, it's just that we are now in a world of the 10th best struggling to find our way to the 9th best. Sure. Um, so to pick up on Jacob's last comment, I think it is very important to um, figure out a positive response rather than just simply relying on negative ones, right? So we don't want to, you know, if one wanted to, get rid of Trump simply because we find out that you know his his uh, son-in-law had been having you know you know secret conversations with the Russians because that will solve none of the problems. So I think that as tempting as that is for people on the left or anti-populist, I'm sorry to use this term again with Chris, um, want to sort of solve these problems, it has to be with positive rather than purely negative solutions. If we are to take, or we, if we are to start from the assumption that we are dealing with a mixture of both economic and social cultural causes, I actually think the economic part of it is easier but more politically difficult. We need to figure out ways to not just increase growth, but increase the distribution or nature of that growth. Economic inequality has to decline. Social mobility has to rise. The infrastructure of rural and um, um, you know, ex-coastal or in Europe, ex-urban places has to be improved. We know what the solution to those economic problems is. Politically, they are very difficult to reach. In Europe, which I know more about, Clearly, we have to blunt the view that the EU is this deeply pernicious and anti-democratic institution. That view is not entirely incorrect and must be addressed. I see that tentative steps being made by people like Macron, hopefully with some support by Merkel to change those perceptions. That is a long-term thing. It absolutely positively must change. In Europe, where I actually think the social and cultural issues 
are less problematic than in the United States because they are much deeper rooted in our history. I can't say here because we're in Canada, but to the south of the border, clearly issues of immigration need to be dealt with. We can no, Europeans can no longer ignore that people are worried and concerned about demographic changes that have happened in the space of several decades that many of these societies have absolutely no experience dealing with. Better integration policies, caps on the number of people that can come in until labor market and other reforms have been figured out to help integrate them. These are sensible solutions to these problems. They are politically very difficult. It is the left that has more problems with them than the right, but they are possible. They are possible, not easy, but possible. These are tractable, if difficult, problems. <clears throat> And they must be dealt with in a positive way, not simply by criticizing the movements and the people who support them. Um, so I think there are solutions out there, although I think as others have mentioned, I think there is a time and consistency problem here. The great thing, again, sorry Chris, that populists can do is they have simple solutions to complex problems. And for people not like us who don't have a lot of time to go to panels and read the equivalent of the New York Times, that's what they hear and that makes sense to them. The solutions are complicated and they take time and people don't want either of those things, but we must, that is to say people who are democratic with a small d, we must be able to make these cases, otherwise the game will in fact, I think, be lost. How optimistic is that? That was, that was pretty good. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we just go for it? Yeah, yes. I, 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 I just got one comment. We, we, so, real quick. Let's, let's uh, finish this topic, actually, because okay. I think I haven't heard from all of you. Oh, and then okay. I have one final question oh, before we open oh. it up to the, the... We're not killing time for questions? I mean, we've already spoken a lot. Yeah, Why not just open it up to people? But, yeah. yeah, I did have one quick response to Jacob. Empirically speaking, the Tea Party, tea party support was among a, probably the best predictor of uh, support for Trump and also for voting for Trump vis-a-vis -vis Hillary. So empirically speaking, in the general, yeah, in the general, in election. the general, in the general, election. but but right. in the primaries, in the primary, no, 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 Trump, the primary, Trump no, was not oh, no, no, you're, you're totally right. But after the primaries, yeah, yeah. a lot of those Tea yeah, Party yeah. folks came yes. home. Trump. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Tea Party also have a lot of corporate support behind the scenes to the left wing equivalent, obviously. That's that, that's what that's what was started first, but there was a subsequent it's report that came out. Yeah, it's much more complicated. complicated. There was a lot of grassroots supports. No, yeah, yeah. no, no, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm saving my last question for later, and want to open it up now to the audience. So the audience can ask questions. So once you do uh, please introduce yourself very briefly and speak loudly so we can hear you. Um, so uh, I'm gonna just uh, moderate this a little bit. Um, I, I see you all, so please. Um, Thank you, uh, and from the University of Guelph. Uh, thanks very much for this great panel. It's very funny and, uh, and insightful. Um, my question has to do with it seems to me that most of you were talking about. Um, the rise of these parties in terms of uh, demand for them. Um, and so we'll talk about anger and fear and economic insecurity and cultural anxiety and racism. Uh, I don't know if it's true that since the 1980s when we've seen these things rise, that these things have increased. So are people now more racist than they were 30 years ago? Are they more economically, do they have more economic anxiety? Do they have more cultural anxiety? Do, are they more fearful? Are they angrier? Um, and if we don't have evidence for those things, uh, aren't the solutions also probably a little different? So let me take that one. Yeah. I'm speaking just for the United States, okay? So I think that 2008, we can all sort of point to Obama, right, as sort of, uh, 
uh, bringing to the surface a lot of this latent racism, if you will, and not necessarily latent in all cases. It was manifest before that. But Obama as president of the United States, right? I mean, the president, we all know as Americans, we all know who the president is from the time we're a little kid, right? The president is the chief, chief law enforcement officer, the commander in chief. The, the president is larger than life, unfortunately, given who we got now um, in American political and social life. And so for a lot, he, he is, and hopefully one day she is the embodiment of America, right? And so for a lot of these people, that was just too much for them, right? And so what happens is, is that you get this, you get this backlash and pushback, right? Which is, not, I wanna say, I wanna be clear, racism existed before that, sexism, all of that stuff existed, but Obama was an inflection point, right? At least in the American case, right? In many ways, the ways in which Obama came to be elected, some people would argue he was a course correction of Bush. And now Trump is a course correction to Obama. Okay, let's go on to the next question, please. My name is Antonio Torres-Cruz at uh, York University, and I really enjoy this panel. I have lots of things to say, and of course I want. I, I wrote some paper, I'm presenting tomorrow from 10 to 12.30 on democracy and populism. I shared the paper with you because I'm surprised that you didn't, because mine is more of a critique of political science and the terminology. I'm originally from Mexico, and I draw a lot from Latin America, where populism is a, a well-known phenomenon. There is no mention, of course, uh, we don't have the time to mention all the authors and, and, and uh, different definitions, but I didn't find a clear definition from the panel about populism. And I draw from Lacau, and for me, populism is a moment. It's a move, it's a political moment, a political move. It, it's not like a populist government, it's something that I would not agree with. That, or and I think that what is causing all these um, phenomena on the left and the right, we can think of Podemos in Spain as well, uh, is more about uh, that against the status quo, that, that, that rise of the people. Because the people has been absent, I believe, in many liberal democracies. Uh, and, I, and, and I would also question, how you, what kind of democracy are you defending? Liberal democracy, and I think that's the problem. As Chantal says, we have to think of uh, democracy in the plural. Because that's what is causing also okay. this kind of discontent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Does anyone want to take, uh, there were lots of questions in that well, one. I mean, I'll, I'll uh, well, right? the, the, pro the problem with, the problem with definitional consistency is that you can always change your mind. I mean, a phenomena can be described in multiple different ways. I mean, it's, there's no such thing as the proper definition of X, and it's either more or less useful. So I'm not, I'm not sure where that gets us. Uh, but I agree with the essence of what you're saying, and we've touched upon this. Uh, I tend to think that the, sort of the intense technification of politics has led to a reaction that's part of what's going on. I think the, uh, the errant failure of the expert classes to actually know what the hell they were doing and being exposed on that has become part of that. And if we want to describe that in a sort of a Klaus sense as a, as a moment, then I'm perfectly happy with that. But I don't see how that sort of qualitatively transforms our understanding of what is essentially a very complex phenomenon. It adds to it, it's a different way of looking at it, but it doesn't make me go, oh yeah, that's really it. Because I don't think that's the story. So I'm, I'm taking notes here. Who, the people who want to ask a question, please raise your hand to me once I'm, I have your attention or the other way around. Um, I have Henry Milner on my list. Well, uh, Henry Milner, University of Montreal. Um, I, I have to say that I'm a bit surprised. 
and say, don't be surprised, they'll be heard a lot about supporters of controversy parties and movements, but not much about what they stand for. I think part of the problem is when we throw in Trumpism with the rest of it, Trumpism stands for absolutely nothing other than supporters. In fact, it would be interesting to hear more about what these various populist and authoritarian movements stand for. And, uh, and let me just add that uh, I can answer that question partly because uh, I'm the editor of a journal called Ingram. Some of you know it. At 5 o'clock, we are launching a new issue. The new issue has reports from seven or eight places from specialists going, what's going on in each of those countries. And if you were interested in coming, we have a few places that see me afterwards. Thank you. Jamie. Um, so, um, that's a lot of stuff. Okay, um, I think that, um, yes, categories or definitions have to mean something for them to be helpful at all. Um, and I think that an important um, thing to think about, I was hoping maybe Jacob would respond, which, which also relates to the question that the previous gentleman brought up, is that it's really important for us to distinguish between um, democracy and liberalism. We tend to conflate those terms. Historically, they have gone together. There is simply no reason why they must. Um, I think that um, what populist parties in Europe stand for is somewhat different than what Trump stands for. I think there you have a lot of these movements that mix the right and the left in very interesting ways. I think there's definitely that profile in the European case. Trump fainted towards that discursively, but policy-wise, there's none of that. But this attempt to kind of mix left and right, you know, to support support for people who are seen as losers in the global economy with more conservative, or no, I don't want to use that term around you, with more right-wing um, social or cultural values, I think that's pretty common. But these are generally profoundly anti-liberal parties, although they are not necessarily, I think, as I've said before, anti-democratic ones. And here's where, when you start talking about McLeod and Muth, my hackles start to get up, because this is a place where the left and the right have a tendency to meet, and it's a place where populism really does differentiate itself, I think, from a lot of other kinds of um, movements, and that's something we really need to think about. Um, did you want to come in on this? Or? Um, there's, there's always going to be a hollowness in what the authoritarian, opportunistic, strongman leader looks like he believes in his soul. He is, after all, an opportunistic, strongman leader who figured out uh, what would be the route to power. That doesn't mean that there aren't uh, commonalities among the inchoate demands of the supporters. And I think that uh, the inchoate demands of the supporters of Trumpism and of more or less equivalent movements in Hungary and Turkey and to a certain degree in Western Europe, uh, we can see commonalities there even if we say, well, Trump doesn't stand for anything. And Erdogan, in some sense, doesn't stand for anything other than what can uh, let him <coughs> advances power another notch the next day. Okay, thank you. I have keys on my list. Uh, I uh, enjoyed the panel a lot. Um, I'd like to pick up on an observation that Jacob made about the role political institutions in all of this, and a suggestion that presidential systems are more vulnerable to this kind of populist authoritarianism. Um, so, one of the things I've been struck by is the extent to which well, the, the issue after the election becomes to what extent do the institutions constrain 
a populist authoritarian leadership. But I would have thought, watching the American system at the moment, that those constraints are actually biting on him, binding him in, in some areas, less than others, but that um, I, I've been impressed by the pushback on some issues. And so I would put it that, I have, boy, if a Trump got power in a parliamentary system like Canada, there's less of a way. The, the, the parliamentary party wouldn't have chosen him and wouldn't have left him in office at seven different moments in the first hundred days. The parliamentary party already would have deposed him. Um, some of the constraints are acting more effectively than some of my worst fears on January 19th. But there seems fairly likelihood that today he's going to announce that the United States is withdrawing from the Paris Accords. There's a tremendous amount that a president of the United States can do unilaterally just by speaking it in a way that the civil service can't constrain, Congress isn't going to constrain, and the judiciary isn't authorized to constrain because it's policy, not constitutionalism. You're next. Uh, yes, hi, my name is Edmond. Yes, I'm a professor of communication studies at Harvard, and I'm amazed that in the discussion about populism, nothing has been said about communication. Both are very closely related. And a lot has been written, like in the Turkey, about the relation between the rise of computers and the emergence of radio, the appearance of radio. And what about social media, the huge expansion of social media, the capacity for anyone to become a producer, and also on social media, it's very high on nasty talk and expression of anger, frustration. And with the, the booming of social media, you have the desecration of regular newspaper, the appearance of fitness, everything. We're all too old to talk about social media. <laughs> Basically, I'm, yeah, I'm, I still use this as a phone, so I have no, no idea about this stuff. Um, yeah, obviously, I mean, the game has changed in this regard. I mean, the whole phenomenon of fake news, right? Planning Facebook feeds, you know, whether algorithms are being manipulated, etc., etc. I actually think this speaks to a bigger problem, which is the two largest news organizations in the world are Google and Facebook. They have no editorial standards, no editorial control, they're entirely private sector organizations, and they have more personal data on everyone in this room than the NSA. Uh, so to me, that's what you're talking about is the outcome of this process, which is troublesome, but what's far more troublesome for me is the fact that these two corporations can actually write the rules of what you get to see, and we have no input into that whatsoever. I think that's incredibly dangerous. 20 years worth of people thinking that the digital media were going to flatten and render horizontal and render person to person and in some sense more decentralized and disaggregated our media consumption. Uh, they, there's an amount of rethinking that has to be done with the realization that something like Twitter can also represent disintermediated direct megaphone access for an extremely centralized voice. Um, Part of the story of social media last year is the disaggregated and bought encouraged dissemination of falsehoods. But part of the story is the distinctive use that Trump has made of Twitter, um, which is highly, highly horizontal, vertical, and makes it impossible for the intermediating media institutions to do the work that they used to do. Yeah. Okay. 
Thank you. I have some questions here up front now. Yes, please. Maurice Sergei from Italy. I'm based in Montenegro University in the US. And uh, I have some experience coming from Italy about nationalism and uh, exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about uh, these topics in the sense that uh, Brexit and France uh, can represent also a way of nationalism return after the erosion of nation state. Because nation state is not eternal, exists since 400 years, it's changing, it's eroded from bottom and from top. And the exceptionalism that these two countries are appealing to, I argue, that is also a reaction to the uh, Western liberal order erosion. In the sense of, we are back, we want to stay alone because now there is a Easternization on a globalization and we want to take power there. Thank you for your policy. So, no, go ahead. No, um... So, yeah, I mean, I, th I think you're totally right, at least as far as Trump is concerned. I mean, so I, I developed a model to explain um, these, once again, reactionary movements, um, um, one of which one of the elements is nationalism, the other two are paranoid social cognition and this perception of existential threat. Um, and so nationalism, yeah, it's, it's clear. You, when you see the discourse around Trump and his campaign even before that, um, it was all about nationalism, which is they, they like to think themselves patriots, but these people cannot understand the distinction between patriotism and nationalism, right? And, and they try to paint it as patriotism, but it's not. So just long story short, I completely agree that that's been a discourse around, around Trump and before that even you know, the Tea Party. Just, just two, just, oh, sorry. All right, just two fingers on that one. I, I agree with the general macro story. I mean, if you want growth in this world, buy Asian equities. Don't buy European ones, right? Because they're too, people in Europe are too old. It's that simple, right? They oversave, right? Growth's in Asia. Uh, but apart from that, we misunderstand this, uh, how this relationship works. So think about what Trump says about China. China is this terrible threat, and we've got this trade imbalance, we do this, right? So the Chinese have a 10-year plan where they don't want to be an export platform anymore. They're six years into it, right? They want to become a consumption economy. They're essentially four years ahead of where Trump wants to be, right? And he doesn't even know that. <laughs> right? So the disconnect in terms of like how policy elites think about the world, there's just no joined up thinking. The only joined up thinking I see is actually in places like China, which are not democratic. Did you know that little story on this one? China installed in the past two years more solar than the United States has. The United States went to the WTO three days ago and asked for an anti-dumping uh, route on uh, solar panels. So rather than take a tech that would allow us in the United States to retool our grid and be environmentally good, we're going to put a tariff on it so we can protect coal jobs so we can screw ourselves even more. No joined up thinking. Anyway, um, I'd love to get into a debate with Mark about the relative um, merits and advantages of democracy versus authoritarianism, but that's probably another panel. Um, I think this um, vote for me. I think this point that this gentleman made is a very important one. In another way, actually, I think where we can see some of the commonalities across time and space. This kind of concern about national sovereignty reappears over and over again, whether it's in Greece or the United States or France. And again, I think we really want to differentiate between the legitimacy of the concerns or criticisms and the responses to them. There is a real reason to fear that national sovereignty has been eroded. It has been. It has been eroded by both international factors and in the minds of some, I think less, much less correctly, by internal changes as well. And so this idea of national sovereignty has been, is seen by many as have been attacked by both outside and internal forces. There is not 
There is, or rather, there is some truth to that. The responses to it, to close in, right? That is not going to help because there are certain trends that are not going to be changed and the responses to them have to be much more thoughtful. But again, this is a theme that we see across both what you might call left and right wing populisms. It is a legitimate concern and it is something that again, I think Democratic with a small D elites have not done a very good job of addressing. They just prefer to ignore it rather than think about both what's going on and ways to respond to it that can still safeguard some of the positive trends that clearly have occurred over the last, you know, whatever, decades. Okay, I still have a lot of people on our list. We have 10 minutes about the left. Uh, and I still want to ask my last question, so please. Hi, my name's Ben Moffat, I'm from Uppsala University in Sweden, and I have a book out called The Global Rise of Populism. <laughs> Get plugging. <laughs> I have questions about the use of the term populism when we're engaged kind of in, in more public uh, spaces. I mean, we have a conflation a lot of time between uh, using that as an analytical term and then the normative pejorative. We all, yeah, as a pejorative. And I, you know, watching the um, coverage of the UK election at the moment, Corbyn's being him as a populist uh, party. I mean, he looks to me like an old school social democrat. So I'm wondering if it, how we negotiate that as as an ex as an experts speaking to the media in using this. I have, a, I have a slide that I use, the first slide, it's a map of the world, and then basically it's of all the people who get called populists. So it starts with Abe in Japan, he gets called a populist at home, um, what's his name in the Philippines, right, and then or Russia, Russia right, and then you, it fills up the whole map, right, it goes at Hungary, right, and all these people have been called and are called populists, right, now do they have much in common? Well, you start to throw in Nicholas Sturgeon, Jeremy Corbyn, no, they don't, it becomes utterly meaningless, right, but the slide says, it's a little animation that comes out and it says, the problem with populism is it's popular, <laughs> right, so in a sense we can't avoid it, because, you know, what we study and whatever fields we come from is politics, right? And this is politics. This is the politics of the moment. We can, we can disagree on the drivers, we can disagree on the models, we can disagree on the, the statistics, etc., etc. That's what we do as geeky academics, right? But ultimately, we have to deal with the fact that this very large amorphous thing, which has very weird characteristics, has come up and is yep. there and is popular. Yes. That's why that conflation is unavoidable. Can I just sure. come in? And I'm, once we're in agreement on something. So, yeah, I mean, it's everywhere, I mean, if it's everywhere, it's nowhere, right? Because it's just, it's too popular, right? Too and, popular. and that's one of the reasons why I have not seen, at least at the mass level, somebody measure populism. It is not. Some people have done it, the Ackerman piece, you know, in CPS a few years ago, did it, but they did it using exploratory factor analysis. I'm like, really? Can we please fit a confirmatory model to this, right? And it's, okay, that's... <laughs> Insider baseball geeky, right geeky, geeky statistical <laughs> stuff. That's the most rigorous way of, of testing things at the mass level for new um, psychometric, um, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Against um, economic status, to what extent do you think uh, conservative 
capitalism, at least in Anglo-American countries, is being you know, funded and promoted and ginned up by economic elites actually speaking to the English so that goes back to our question about, for example, the Tea Party, corporate support. Yeah, the, co- much of, uh, but the, co- the Koch brothers, brothers. Yeah, the yeah. Koch brothers, big time in this, right? I mean, yeah, there is there is that element to it. Um, but there was a report that was uh, uh, published, uh, and I wrote on in uh, the Brookings Institute uh, thing uh, about in, in 2014, in which a lot of it. And at the beginning, yeah, it was a lot of corporate funding. But as the movement matured, uh, relatively speaking, it shifted more and more towards a grassroots platform. Right, it got off the ground with corporate. I mean, think the Koch brothers' father was on the initial board of directors for the John Birch Society, right? So, so yeah, there's a lot of corporate funding in it. But when it comes to the Tea Party, at least that sort of bled off, and it became more and more of a grassroots movement as it matured. It's not as though financial elites wanted Brexit, and it's not as though the elites of the American corporate world wanted to throw out the TPP. Um, there, there's a level of mid-level wealth in post-industrial middle America, and another of the strong predictors of Trump's report was being an elite in a relatively depressed area. Those people are big donors to some of the, but they're not the richest people in the country. Um, They're not, they don't order the commanding heights. Precisely what they feel is they've got something to lose and they're going to lose it. Uh, But the the damage that's going to be done to the liberal economic order by these populist movements, that's something that the the real financial elites, the leaders of the commanding heights of the economy, they they are afraid of and they haven't been supported. Sure. Another way to respond to that question would be to think about the times when, to use John's kind of terminology, conservatives and reactionaries have something to ally about. Right? And so I think that another way of answering your question, rather than just thinking about who's funding whom, is one of the things that I saw in this last election was that more traditional conservatives were willing to throw in their lot with somewhat more reactionary or populist appeals simply to kind of make sure that their party won on the theory that once it did, they could get most of what they wanted and you know, they throw a few bones to the kind of hoi polloi who supported them. This is a phenomenon that we have seen both comparatively and historically. It is an extremely dangerous one. The conservatives tend to lose overall in this kind of situation. But it's an important phenomenon to note that there are times, just like when the extremes on the left and the right meet, which every time I hear, you know, Moof and LaClau, I begin to worry about. There are times when, again, conservatives and reactionaries could be very opposed to each other, but then there are times when they see that their interests may align. And that is a time when you can see things like Trump happen. And, um, you know, so separate from the financial stuff, sort of interesting, I think, popular and other types of alliances are going on in the world today that give us somewhat unpredictable outcomes. Just a quick one on this. So I don't have a book to flog just now, but I do have a YouTube channel that has over <laughs> Because one of the things I did was I predicted Trump six months out. And the reason I did this, I started to clue into it, was the primaries. And in the primaries, does anybody remember this? Jeb, exclamation mark. (laughs) Those corporate interests spent $100 million trying to get that man elected and it had zero resonance. They then went down every mainstream Republican until they got to the religious conservative who was the choice of last resort and they still couldn't stop the Donald. So that tells me something interesting. We worry a lot, quite justifiably, about Citizens United as a decision, etc, etc. But you know what? It's not nearly as powerful as we think, particularly with the rise of new media, alternative sources, grassroots networks. 
This is much more complex than we like to think. Right? It's no longer a case of corporate elites pay for talking pig heads who become the political classes. That just doesn't work anymore. Okay, so I, I'm going to do one last collected question from the audience. So uh, everyone who wants to ask a question can raise their hand and please ask a one-sentence <laughs> question. Not more, one-sentence question. Do you still want to ask a question? Sure. We collect them, okay? So, yeah. I was wondering if uh, one of the reasons why we have such a trouble defining and counting, especially right wing populism, is because it's absolutely just opportunistic. These are, these are people are promising a shift from technocratic policy to popular politics, and we will use whatever primary racism, economic side, or whatever, uh, just to do that. And that's why we're in such trouble. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Did you have a question? Yeah. What's that? That was a done deal. Right. Very good one sentence question. Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay, last one. Uh, in the city of uh, Ross Ford, how do the issues of right wing populism and new right wing populism play out? And, and, and in other localities, how does it play out local in the city? Uh, um, I would not be assured that our political parties protect us in Canada and covering with somebody like Trump didn't happen. We voted for Harvard, for Harris, and Ford without the, the institutional opposition. Okay. Right. Yeah. One each down the panel. Go. Ford wasn't a creature of a parliamentary system, and Harper is not Donald Trump. Harper was an aggressive conservative. We have to be able to think about ongoing partisan contestation in multi-party democracies in ways that say the existence of conservatives is not itself a crisis. And I think... I do think we'd be able, we've got to be able to talk coherently about the difference between... Trump or Erdogan and yeah. or the ordinary life of partisan contestation. Um, I'm gonna let, I'm just gonna plug my book. Great White Hope, Donald Trump, Race and the Crisis of American Politics. Hopefully it'll be out next year. Done. <laughs> <laughs> it's Brexit a done deal. Here's exactly what's gonna happen, right? Um, 12 months from now, Theresa May, who will scrape through in this election with the same majority she has now by the looks of her, which is a bit of a, whoop, that didn't go well. She's going to basically realize that they have no capacity to negotiate this and the Europeans have no interest in giving them a good deal. So she's gonna default, she's gonna bail out, she's gonna point the finger at Europe, she's gonna wrap herself in Union Jack, and it's going to get an, an even more nasty nationalist reaction. Five years from now, the British economy is going to be Latvia with airbags in an even bigger financial sector. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, I'll respond to the first question since I think that was the one that got the, the least response thus far. I think populists are often opportunistic because they peddle simplistic solutions to complex problems, as we've mentioned many times. But I think, again, their appeal or what drives them or their style is what's really important, less what they, you know, what they promise. So I would not expect to see coherent responses from populists other than this constant whipping up of fear and discontent. Um, okay, so, before yeah. I ask my last question, because we have two minutes left, uh, I like to say that uh, this event was sponsored by the political science department at McGill and by the Center for the Study of Democratic Citizenship. Um, and uh, my last question for you is, and I want only one sentence answers because we don't have more time. 
There are lots of people in the room uh, who like to study populism. And I want to know from you where you see the research on populism in the social sciences going and where should it go, where it hasn't been, where do we need to look in order to address these issues that we discussed today. So that's my last question for the panel, which gives it an academic ending. Um, so real quick, I think if populism is going to be a more useful term to your point and uh, uh, gentlemen over there's point, um, from Mexico, um, it needs to be more precisely measured, more precisely theorized, if it's going to be a useful point at all. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I would think that the research should focus um, on the positive rather than the negative. What kinds of responses, what kinds of policies actually get people who vote or support for populist parties to switch their votes? That's what I'd like to know, and I think that's the best way we can address this both in a scholarly and a practical manner. Okay? I think we have to figure out most of all whether this is structural or cyclical. Essentially, we're looking at a time series data flow, and we're saying there's a structural break. And this is why, and it's important. But if it's not, then that leads somewhere. And if it is, then that leads somewhere else. And we don't really know what the story is. Is this structural or is it cyclical? That's what we need to figure out. Mm -hmm. And the final word goes to Jacob. I want there to be a lot of research trying to answer the question that Dietland asked twice, uh, more or less in vain. Uh, what, what can we know about the kinds of institutions that will be robust to these moments, such that constitutional democratic systems can have waves where the psychology, the opinion, the, uh, the sentiment on the ground takes a turn that doesn't do permanent damage to the functioning of civil society, the liberal market economy, and constitutional democratic government, and which kinds of institutions can't do the work. Thank you very much. Uh, join me, please.